learning printmaking allowed me to wipe the plate just a bit Mm -hmm. so you'd get an image but not the full image and it was as again memory emerges and it recedes and so that's what I was trying to illustrate with Whispering City. Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. To engage with the work of visual artist June Clark is to enter a world of lingering memory, evocative images, and installation works that reverberate the histories and stories that inform them. Through her art practice, June Clark's search for her place in the world is intensely personal, but opens out onto the increasingly alienated world that we all share. Growing up in Harlem gives her a unique understanding of the contemporary world. The events of her life shape new understandings of the past. It is this encompassing self which gives her work its depth and relevance. Photographs, etchings, collage, and sculpture lead her to formulate methods of expression in order to communicate the intertwining of her past and her present. Clark's practice has many levels and is never didactic. Uh, I'm speaking with esteemed and much admired visual artist, June Clark. That's Um, when I make faces. (laughs) (laughs) It's an honor uh, having an opportunity to speak with you. Your career as an artist spans close to 50 years now. Yeah. You started in photography in the 60s, having left the United States in the wake of the Vietnam War. You began to take pictures shortly after arriving, and since then you've worked in installation, collage, printmaking, and sculpture. I'm curious about your earliest influences in art. I know you often say that you were gifted a camera when you arrived and you started taking pictures, but I want to know how you came into art much earlier. Maybe it's in your childhood or... No, I I probably didn't. When I came here, I was in administration. Unbelievable in Canada. I came one day and got a job the next day at U of T. Yeah, it can't happen (laughs) like that anymore, but uh, I did. And it wasn't until I was gifted the camera that I began walking around and didn't realize I was looking for the familiar because I had to uh, leave the States Mm -hmm. very, very quickly, 48 hours. And it wasn't until after I became a photographer and my mother Mm. having been an artist and painter. My mother was a milliner. And then I turned around and became interested in what her trajectory into the uh, art world. Prior to coming, you didn't conceive of yourself as an artist. No, You didn't have that notion. You came to to do administrative work. That's right. Right. Yes, that's right. I was assistant to the chair of of speech pathology (laughs) at U of T. Right. And 
I began making photographs. And as I say, all you need is to encourage someone. Mm -hmm. And people continually told me that uh, they liked my photographs. And then I met uh, Larry Zolf and Patsy Zolf. And Patsy was the one who said, well, there's Mm -hmm. a gallery on Baldwin Street. You should go and see. They might like to show your work. And that's when I met Laura Jones. Right. And John Phillips, right. and they were running the Baldwin Street Gallery, and they had two dark rooms in the basement, and it was amorphous. We it just it went from there. very organic that we began. Did you come to a point though, whether in a year, two years, two years, where you said to yourself, "This is viable. I can, I can be a working artist." No. No. <laughs> It didn't work that way. I just continued to make photographs. It took me a very, very long time, a few years before I would say, I'm a photographer. To declare it, yeah. That's right. To make that declaration is a big, big step, especially if you haven't been trained. Right. If you've trained yourself, and that's exactly what we did. We, We taught ourselves. Right. So in my mind, I was part of a group of women, and we just supported ourselves. You've talked about your artistic practice as being meditative, that the materials you work with guide you somehow to their rendering. They they present to you how they want to be. uh, To be used. To be used. To be used. Tell me about that process. Well, it is that. The idea happens. I decide what I want to say, what I need to say, really. And then I find the materials in which to say them. Very different process than photography where you find images. But the idea of my collages and my my sculpture... Mm -hmm. The idea comes first, and then the material. I find the material, and sometimes, often, I'll go into the studio, and the material will say, "Well, no, I can't do that. Right. You've got to think a different way of saying what you want to say." Right. And often, I will find a way of saying something or doing something, and then I'm in the middle of it, and it's been three or four days, and I'm still trying to... And it is a meditative situation with me. And often I'll say, how did you win? Why did you start this? Are you very conscious of that process, or is it one of sort of just happening and you're surprised by what happens sometimes. Yes, or is it a- the, the last piece I did, the piece called Tubman, mm. that I tied yarn to chains and then yes. hung them. That was a meditative because basically I'm just making knots right. in all of the loops of the chain. I suppose... That's my form of meditation Mm -hmm. in terms of doing the same thing over and over. And we see that in all of a sudden I have a curtain of yarn. We Uh, see that in your flag works as well. Yes. Whether you're unraveling. The moral disengagement piece of that was the piece that 
made me realize I'd been doing flags for about a decade. And I hadn't thought of it. But it's just pulling those threads and trying to come to terms with what was happening to this country that I was born in. You've had also a long and productive career in teaching. You were a mm-hmm. teacher for quite some You've taught yes. at several institutions. Mm-hmm. And I know artists sometimes don't like to talk about other artists, but I'm wondering, when you look at the work of younger artists today, in particular Black artists, does anything excite you? You know, I, I probably am thinking more in terms of the writers, Dion mm. Brand, mm-hmm. Christina Sharp. Mm-hmm. Those are the people who are turning around and influencing me and spurring me on. I'm reading what they have to say and how they are basically saying the same things we were saying in the 60s and the 70s, but a much sharper, clearer sense of where they are in the world. Because we were just trying to figure it out. And they know where they are, and they're trying to guide us now. What about in the visual art realm? Does anything concern you about what you're seeing among Black artists today, some of the ideas or, or no, I dare say, trends or anything like that? No. Well, we were just talking about Amity. I yes. mean, that work is sensational. Yes. And you walk into a room. I'm getting goosebumps yes, just thinking yes. about it. You walk into a room and you you see what he's trying to do. Not trying, he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Bringing that right into your marrow mm. to say what he has to say with his materials. It's mm-hmm. so exciting. Do you still uh, stay in touch with students? Are you are you still teaching or mentoring or anything? Uh, like? No, I, I wouldn't say. I mean, no. you de- you never know. I mean, someone will look at your work. And that I think that's what happens in the yeah. art world. You look at work and you say, hmm, yeah, I can do that. You, or you, you or not, I, not I can yeah. do that, but that gives me an idea yeah. of something that's been lying in the corner of the studio. I can use that in some way. Yeah. I want to talk about your Harlem Quilt installation, first show in, uh, at the Studio, studio. Museum mm-hmm. in 1997, which you made because you were there for a residency, I believe. Yes, yeah. that was quite interesting to be able to go back because 1997. That was your first time back to Harlem, was it? To live there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, my mother was there, my sure. sister, I family there, and I would go, go back, back and forth. Right. Back and forth, but right. to have the opportunity to live there. And, and I had a myriad emotions yes. being on 125th Street because I grew up on 118th right. Street, so I wasn't that far. And my church was around the corner from the Studio Museum. So I had all really conflicting mm. emotions. So I decided I needed to understand how I was feeling and put it into some way. And I had my camera, and I decided if I put it 
to my eye, I'm going to edit, I'm going to choose. Right. So what I did was I would set my camera, I have a Leica, and I would set my F-stop, etc., in the morning, mm-hmm. and then I would hold it at my hip, and I'd walk around and just click. Just, just as I walk, the not streets. knowing what you're capturing. Not, no, right. I never knew until I processed the film right. each day what I had, right. because I definitely didn't want to edit and editorialize right. yeah. what I was seeing. And it was only, I think, this year that I realized not only what did I do that, but I had the camera at the height of a seven-year-old. And that was very important to yes. me to to do that. Let's describe the work a little bit. It consists of, of these images that you've just described that you, mm-hmm. you took on, on these walks. They're transposed. Hundreds, there, there are hundreds of, them. Of, of images because I just clicked. Right. Just kept clicking all day. And this isn't digital. Right, I'm right, yeah. strictly analog. Yes, yes. And, and you transpose uh, them onto fabric. Of, and of I went to, there was a Goodwill store right. on 125th Street, a block away from the Studio Museum. And I went and bought pounds of clothing right. and decided to put the images on the clothing as a way of dealing with where I was and I remember I was in the uh, studio, and and then I thought, I'm cutting up perfectly good clothing Clothes. that people can use. <laughs> right. And the curator was so wonderful. She was such a good curator, and she said to me, but June, you paid for the clothes. That's what right. you yeah, did. So it's that okay yeah. that yeah. you are doing it yeah. in this way. The immersive experience of it is really enhanced by the lighting. Are those Christmas lights that or, or uh, no? No, I went down to Delancey okay. and had them made up. The technology is so different now. Okay, I went down and had them put it together. I don't know if you know Delancey Street. You can just you can do get anything, anything right, on right. Delancey. And, and I was able to work with an electrician and have them string the lights. The lights now down. you can just do it. Right, and right. But at the time... So powerful. Yes. And it's been shown recently and continues to be shown. I know there's some upcoming exhibitions. Yes. It, it, it was in Miami not too long ago. What's it like to see it 30 years in these different iterations, these different spaces? It's it's very exciting. Again, you remember, I remember the guy I knew on Delancey. I remember yeah. the people who helped me process the work and the making of it. It's very, very important and very, uh, for me, document of that time. Because as I say, I I got there and I realized that nothing had changed in Harlem and absolutely everything had changed. It was very uh, interesting for me because... That was when Clinton decided he was going to have a His office an office that, on yeah, a hunt. Yeah. It was, was across the street from the making uh, a big show of it. Yes, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, we went. <laughs> mm, 
Yeah. <laughs> Coming up to Harlem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Well, that was his saxophone playing years, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that. I want to talk about memory because you seem to reference memory, whether they be personal or family or, and, and memory is so, it seems to me, central to your work. Well, that, again, that's how I hold on to where I grew up and how I hold on to all of those people who influenced me. Right. I didn't know how to manifest that in my work other than the family secrets right. thing. And those boxes, I just made things up. Right. I started the Whispering City mm-hmm. series having a conversation with my sister, who was my closest, closest friend, closest relative. She was 18 months younger than than me. And I remember growing up, she could finish my sentences. I knew she could be sitting across the room. I knew what she was thinking. That's how close we were. And I recalled an incident that had happened that we were both privy to. Mm. And I was appalled that she remembered it completely different than I did. (laughs) I I, I was almost angry. Right. And that's when The Whispering City came about because I realized, first of all, Whispering City, the images of Whispering City are 30 years from the text of Whispering City. And it was almost as if I realized why I had made those photographs 30 years. Right became almost like, I don't want to say a prophecy, but it was almost like they were brought into existence for a reason. That's exactly right. So many of those I heard, a lot of the texts, what my grandmother used to say or my great-grandmother, etc., used to say. So, And and, things people said to you as a child, some of them quite harsh. As a child, yeah. 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 (laughs) And learning printmaking allowed me to wipe the plate just a bit Mm -hmm. so you'd get an image, but not the full image. And it was as, again, memory emerges and it recedes. And so that's what I was trying to illustrate with Whispering City. Right. Speaking of memory, let's go back to your involvement with the Women's Photography Collective in in the 70s. And I know you've mentioned that at that time, it was hard. It was maybe not even hard, impossible for women to get access to dark rooms. Impossible. You could not. As I always say, what did they think we would be doing (laughs) in there at U of T when there were no women allowed in the dark rooms at yeah. U of T. And this is the I 70s. We're not no, talking the 20s or 30s. <laughs> exactly. But in fact, they did us a favor because we taught ourselves. Yeah. And that's always, for me, the best way. Yeah. You make your mistakes, you, you learn. And we sought the photographers that we wanted to emulate. Right. 
What's changed for women then who practice photography as artists and what hasn't changed? You mentioned you're revisiting Harlem and, and you, you had a similar take where, it, yes, it changed and it didn't change. And I'm wondering about uh, working as an artist I, in photography as a woman. I suppose it's very different. I think that I don't want to sound like an old photogenic, but I know that it. people always say they have no idea how easy it is for them now. Right. But in fact, that is true, that uh, it's inconceivable that you would have people say, no, you can't do it because you're a woman. Yeah. Yeah. It it just almost doesn't even make sense. But I think now, well, we can see it. Women are are yeah. everywhere and doing everything. And, and that is incredible, considering what we had to go through. Yeah. Do you ever enter into circles where you feel as though you're being judged as a Black artist or as a Black woman artist All practicing photography? All the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So oh, that hasn't God. changed. That's No, yeah. no, that yeah. hasn't changed. I think that when you walk in, mm. there is an assumption. And either you say, all right, if you want to feel that way, fine. Yeah. Or you can try and prove that right. it's not necessary for you to think that way about me. Yeah. What do you remember uh, most about the collective days? Was it just trying to learn and figure things out? Was it the we were talking earlier about how you were you would often show each other's work or find mm -hmm. places? When you think back to that time, what really sort of lingers for you? What lingers is first of all, most of us were American, and we were all here for the same reasons. Right. So it didn't feel as if being surrounded by like-minded people, you just did right. what you needed do. to do. Yeah. And you didn't think about it. And as long as you weren't knocking on the door and asking to be let in, and you just did, as I said, Laura and John had two dark rooms in the basement, and we you never thought about not working. Yeah. There was always someone within the co-op that you could call and talk to and right. say, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? Right. We just did it. You've been working uh, in sculpture more recently. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, in particular, your Perseverance uh, Suite Yes. Uh, series. You're using found tools and, and implements. And things I've collected and, collected and saved. The Perseverance Suite, most of the work has something domestic, which I'm using all yes. of my grandmother's <laughs> plates the, the or yeah. Yeah. cups or whatever. Yeah. Fabric coupled with Field, field tools. Field, yeah. and, and it's important to me because I grew up with my mother and father working. Right. There wasn't a, a separation of... Right. Division they, of labor. They had to work together to make a living. Right. And so that's what Perseverance Suite is all about right. in terms of 
domestic and outside work. Are you enjoying this move more to sculpture? Yes, uh, yeah. I am. Yeah. I, I, I'm learning about metal and, mm. and how to deal with metal and learning all of the guys. And they are guys. No, I shouldn't say that. There is a woman in Kitchener okay. who's a blacksmith, and she's amazing. Right. And she's also helped me realize uh, what you want to do. With, what with I'd like to do with with metal. So in the new year, you will have a, an exhibition both at the AGO and at the power plant, yes. uh, which is exciting. You had your first and only show to date there in 1992, I believe, early 90s. I was part of a group show with uh, four or five other artists. Right. My piece was The Family Secrets, right. the box works that what's, I did. What's it like to come back now 30-some-odd years uh, well, it, it's interesting. I won't know until we, we get there. We, get there, we <laughs> yeah. finalize all of the work. Yeah. But I do know that uh, this time it seems that the people at the power plant are amazing. Nice. And they're, they're very attentive and artists first as opposed to curators right, first. right, right. <laughs> On the podcast, we like to ask guests to pose a question for future guests. So uh, we, we had an artist on who posed this question, and I'd like to ask it of you. How is your artistic practice a spiritual practice as well? I think you've touched on it a little bit, but... Oh, my, my, <laughs> all, my whole practice is spiritual. Yeah. I know that, as I say, it, it sounds crazy, but all of those people who came before me, my parents, my aunts and uncles, the people who lived in the building I grew up in, they're all here. Mm. They're all pushing me and saying, yes, you can do this. Mm. Yes, and we feel very good about what you're doing. It's very, very, very spiritual for me. I I call on them often. And I wonder if you have a question that you can ask of a future artist. It can be about anything. It, it's not necessarily about an artistic practice or... Well, I, I suppose when I ask that, I'm asking that of myself as well. Mm. How... Do we illustrate how do we come to terms with the world we're living in now? Mm. And how do we push people forward to be true to themselves? That's what I would, would say. June, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been oh. a, a real pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> it's been for me as well. You're amazing with your questions. <laughs> Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposodna, and Zachary Skola-Allison. 
This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, and our production manager is Kathleen Specker. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopao Mumu. 